Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini and this episode is devoted to families with special needs kids in the military. Parents of special needs kids know firsthand how challenging any situation can be, from starting school to getting kids the kinds of medical and therapeutic help they need, to just social life in general. Well, now add to that situation that every year or two, you and your family might get uprooted and move to another state, or even overseas. Can you still get the same services in your next location that you're able to get for your child where you currently reside? Well, our guest for this episode, Catherine Lochner, has a lot of experience in this area. Neither she nor her husband were actually in the military, but the company her husband works for contracts with the military, and they lived on military bases with other military families. Their son Cameron was diagnosed with a rare brain tumor in 2000, and they've had to do everything from flying across the world for emergency surgeries to dealing with special education services in the Department of Defense's education system, and relocating several times while all this was going on. She now works as a special needs and special education advocate in the Commonwealth of Virginia. We started off by talking about her background and her son's story. So I have a 23-year-old son Mm -hmm. whose medical diagnosis is brain injury. Some people also call it by other medical terms, which is hydrocephalus, which is a fluid on the brain. Mm -hmm. And his hydrocephalus was caused by a specific kind of pediatric cancer called choroid plexus papilloma. Wow. A big mouthful. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But this type of pediatric tumor is benign. Um, the, The unfortunate thing about this kind is it's very slow growing. So he probably had it at birth, but it wasn't actually affecting his brain and functioning until he was five Uh. and then it was like very sudden he was having a lot of difficulties with balance um couldn't ride a bike um and then by the time we enrolled him in kindergarten we actually kind of thought we were noticing speech problems but we didn't know um because we didn't have kids in our neighborhood to compare it wasn't until he got into kindergarten that we noticed oh he's Definitely struggling. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So if you look at it from the school standpoint, now that he does have an IEP, his eligibility category is traumatic brain injury. Um, And so it kind of really depends on what school district you're in will tell you what your eligibility category is. Right. We've always had the one called traumatic brain injury, but, you know, there are other children that have cancer that would probably be listed as something different, like other health impairment. Right, right. And that's that's always uh, struck me as interesting. You know, the school districts, and I imagine it's just because they just want to uh, have some kind of designation, but sometimes I think they're just a little too, shall we say, simplified with some of their uh, categories for special education and to me, it's like there's sometimes there's not enough. There isn't, um, and it's not that it's different between um, school divisions. It stems from how the IDEA law was written. Um, so that was the uh, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. Mm-hmm. So when they were starting to figure out um, for school folks, how can we label 
a child, in essence, to make sure that everyone meeting this child provides the right kind of service. Right. Um, and it was definitely a struggle between listing a medical diagnosis versus um, what is impacting them academically. Right. Um, so it, it is kind of strange that you have a TBI as an eligibility category because that truly is medical. <laughs> um, but then you'd have something else like um, deafblind. Mm-hmm. So deafblind, typically, that's not something that's going to change over time. You're right. either always deaf or you're not. Um, versus TBI, you have ongoing medical issues, and your health will change hmm. from month to month or even day to day. Right. Uh, so that's truly, um, you know, a medical issue. Right. And then, of course, that uh, probably also allows then for the fact that the child may miss some uh, school year due to medical issues. Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Education is definitely impacted by the amount of time that they can spend in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and even if a school is offering... Uh, home-based education while the student's recovering, even that is is difficult because the teacher could show up one day and the child's just too sick to sit up in a chair. Right. Um, So it's difficult. And and we've struggled with that ourselves. Um, So my son has had seven different surgeries across his lifespan. He's 23 now. but with each surgery comes with recovery, and some had better and faster recoveries than others. Right. <laughs> and some not. And so when you have to deal with the not, you kind of just roll with, hey, the important thing is health first and right. then education. Um, but obviously having said that, you know, education taking a back seat means they're going to be in that education program for much longer than a typically developing student. Right, right. Now being uh, uh, that you were mostly stationed uh, on base or uh, in uh, other parts of the world, were, were Cameron's medical issues handled by military hospitals and doctors or did you have to go off base and where you first lived into Okinawa? Right. They were handled on base. So my son was five. We had just moved to Okinawa, and we were living in town, but, of course, all the services were on base. Right. So when we ended up getting referred to a developmental pediatrician, that was on base. Oh, okay. And it took months and months to go through all the assessments, And then finally the MRI was given, um, and it was through that MRI that we discovered, oh, you know, hey, you've got this brain tumor and hydrocephalus. So now we were dealing with medical evacuation back to the States for care. Oh, really? uh, Because they did not have surgeons, equipment, or any specialists to deal with the required surgery for that kind of medical issue. Oh, boy. Well, that kind of just disrupts the life completely. (laughs) So imagine, okay, you know your child is sick. He just went through an MRI, which is exhausting. And you get the diagnosis, and they say, go home, pack your bag. You're getting on a plane in three hours. Oh, boy. Three (laughs) hours is all they gave you? From the diagnosis, they're like, get on the plane. 
Uh, <laughs> yes. So wow. literally from diagnosis to touching down um, in the States was a total of 18 hours. Oh, man. So it was both excellent and traumatizing. Oh, no kidding. Because <laughs> it was like they acted. They knew they needed to act quickly. But you're as a parent, you're like, oh, my gosh, what do I do? Where do I go? It, but it was so, it was like automatic because the military has done this multiple times before. So they had people walking you through it. As you're going, yeah, yeah. As you're going oh. through it, they're walking you through it. <laughs> yes, literally. Wow. Um, so it's also interesting that because we were civilian attached to the military, we, one, didn't have time to wait for a, medic, a military medical evacuation. Oh, boy. The other thing we were impacted by was even if they did a military evacuation, the next closest base was Hawaii, mm -hmm. but we couldn't use their facilities because we weren't military. Oh, man. <laughs> so they put us on a civilian flight, um, and we flew from Japan to Washington, D.C. Wow. Um, and I'm trying to remember, from, from the landing, we were supposed to have one full night to, you know, just be with family, stay in our family's home, and then drive up to D.C. and and get registered and signed in for the surgery. Right. Oh, no, things had changed during the flight on, on the hospital end, not for our end. So as soon as we arrived, we called the hospital and said, we're here, we've landed, and they're like, great, just take a taxi and come right over. And we're like, oh, boy. what? So as surgeries go, they have a lineup of patients, and the two that had been scheduled ahead of my son Cameron, for whatever reason, had been canceled, and so he was going to be first. Oh boy! <laughs> Which is, you know, I, I suppose from a from a matter of uh, I don't know if he would even be convenient, but I suppose just you know, well, good, he's getting in, but holy cow, can we sleep a little? <laughs> Exactly. It was no time to take a breath. It was like, um, okay, here we are. Wow. <laughs> yes, exactly. Bring them in. Um, and then, of course, the rest is kind of standard. You know, you register, they take your blood sample, um, they give you a bed. And, <laughs> mm, <geez. clears throat> and then, you know, the neurosurgeon for us comes in, explains the procedure, reviews all of the MRI scans, which we had to hand carry oh, back boy. in 2000. Oh, yeah. So that'll tell you how much military or any medical has progressed technology-wise. Right. They couldn't deal with it over on, online back then. Now they can. Exactly. Right. Yeah, so, you know, we, here's us flying on this plane, and we're, we're carrying this what looks like a giant tube of, papers that maybe normally an architect might have, right? but inside is all of our thick, plasticky MRI scans. Oh, man. They were all hard copy back then. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So sort of like <laughs> x-rays. Yes, they are. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah. And boy, don't misplace those or oh, <laughs> lose no. them. Oh, no. Well, we do have a story because oh, no. from one taxi from one airport to the next plane we had to catch. We did accidentally leave the tube in the taxi. Oh. And we had to wait to call, you know, we had to call the taxi people 
They had to find which taxi we were in, call them, tell them to drive back to the airport and give us our tube with all of our scans in it. Oh, man. And do it, it before the plane takes off. <laughs> yeah, and do it before yeah, the plane takes it, off. Right, right. And so the other interesting factor added to our story was all of this happened in December. So oh. here we are um, getting on a plane in Okinawa with tons of people waiting to get on planes to go home for Christmas. Right. And here we are bumping three people off of their seats because medical emergencies take priority. Oh, man. Oh, yeah. So, you know, here we have the, um, I don't know what their title is, um, but it's not stewardess. It's the people in the airport grabbing our bags and helping us run down the run the causeways to catch the planes. Oh, boy. <laughs> There's no easy saunter. Okay, we'll get there sit down and relax. No. It's like, hmm. run, catch the next plane, run, catch the next plane. No oh boy. <laughs> wow. So I think literally when they took my son in for his first surgery, that was probably the first time my husband and I, like, sat. We had time to sit uh. and think and mm -hmm. ponder what just happened to us. Right. <laughs> It was a whirlwind. It oh, was yeah. a storm. Well, you know, it's, you know, all these years later, you can laugh about it, but I'm sure at the time it was the most traumatic thing in the universe. It, it was. It was completely like being a deer in the headlights. And mm. um, everything was moving so fast that you were almost thankful that people were literally directing you, do this first, do this next, and then there. Um, because if you had time to think about it, you would probably be in panic mode and couldn't function. Yeah. Yeah, the shock um, uh, alone is enough to keep you going with adrenaline, but after a while right. it was probably a collapsing point. Oh, yes, that, that's true, and that, that happened. <laughs> um, but luckily for us, um, as far as when the collapse happened, we were in D.C., and we had family that was you know, within an hour drive. Um, so they were all coming up to see us and take right. care of us. And, oh, that's good. Um, have a place to stay. Um, but still, it's like you still can't truly function and care for yourself, even though you're an adult, because all you're thinking about is your poor baby just went through surgery. <laughs> right. And, you know, nobody knows the outcome. Oh, boy. So family, you know, they were cooking for us. They were helping make sure, you know, we got up, we got dressed, we had rides to wherever we needed to go. So it was very nice having family support. Um, I can tell you that with military families, that's not always the case because they'll medevac you to the closest military hospital that can help you. Right, which may be nowhere near the United States of America at all. Right, and nowhere near family. Right. Um, if you are lucky enough to come to any stateside post, um, there are some agencies and nonprofits that are helpful, but um, they're not family. Right. You know, they do a really good job. Like, I'll just throw it out there that, you know, when we were in Washington, D.C., we were at um, the Children's National Medical Hospital, and all of their hotel rooms that they reserve for parents that need extended stay, they were all booked because oh it was Christmas. Right. 
Um, so we were at the Ronald McDonald House. So they had, um, and this was back in 2000 before that particular house was expanded. So I want to say they probably had about 10 rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, now it's actually larger. Oh, great. <laughs> Yeah, so for a short time, we did need to stay there because we needed to be closer to the hospital versus a one-hour drive. Right. So that was nice. So there are groups out there that can assist, but um, not every hospital has that option to refer families to support. So other, let's see, so access to other medical care um, while we were on Okinawa, we did not use any local medical providers um, because once my son had recovered and we got sent back to Japan, we just used the on-base uh, military care providers. Right. And they were able to deal with that uh, situation with your son's recovery and all that? Oh, yes. Hmm. So they had a neurosurgeon at the time that could just do follow-on care and, ah. and uh, order MRI scans annually. Um, and then the schools, as well as the military-based um, child development center, hmm. they had kind of the usual stuff. So an occupational therapist, a physical therapist, a speech pathologist, those kinds of things. Right. Um, so we didn't need to go as they say, out on the economy. Right. <laughs> uh, but many families that were civilians, maybe contractors that were assigned to do a service for the military, they would use the Japanese medical providers um, and not the national system because hmm. if you're not a citizen, you can't use that. Oh. So there were other nonprofit groups usually attached with some kind of church organization. Mm-hmm. And so there, there was a big church organization that ran a hospital. Um, so if you needed just regular primary care checkups and things like that or allergies, you, you could go there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it would be pretty much the same thing, fee-for-service insurance. You pay up front and then you submit everything to your insurance company after the fact. Oh, boy. Um, so, yeah. so it's not easy or cheap. No. <laughs> wow. But now, is that is that is that just uh, uh, the way it is in Japan, or is that do you know if that's pretty much the way it is in all the countries that you have to use uh, a charitable group rather than the national plans? Um, it does actually depend on what country you are in. Okay. From my experience, and I don't have a lot of detail on the the actual data, <clears throat> but there are nations that um, won't let you use their national medical facilities because you're not part of their plan, if you will. Um, hmm. So you kind of do have to rely on, are there other nonprofits or church groups um, that are running hospitals, and that's where you get your care, but also they would speak English. Ah. But then again, there you could just be as lucky as going to, say, Singapore. All, almost all of the doctors are American-trained. They all speak English oh. in addition to their mother language. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not as big of um, a transition, and you don't really have a language barrier. Ah, okay. 
So yeah. they don't have to bring in a translator for you or anything like right. that. Right. So yeah. in, in some countries, there, there isn't a whole lot of barrier. And then again, there are. So um, if you are military, and I might be jumping the gun getting to another question, is mm. if you are active duty military, you are required to sign up for a program called ESMP, so Exceptional Family Member Program. And the active duty person um, would bring in their spouse and go to this meeting where you review all the medical records to make sure that all the family has a medical clearance to travel as well as does the place you're going to have the medical services available. So not every base has that available um, on base, and not every place will have it even on the economy. So you have to kind of go through this vetting system uh, in order to determine whether or not the entire family can come to the new post with the active duty soldier. Oh, okay. Because otherwise then the family stays behind and then the soldier Exactly, goes. right. Okay. So if there aren't the appropriate care uh, available, then the family would have to either stay put or move back to wherever family is right. while the active duty person goes overseas to complete their tour of duty. Huh. Well, I, yeah, that's that makes sense, and that, it's a good thing that they do that, obviously. Yes. Because you don't want to send someone where they're not going to be able to have any help. Right. And um, let me tell you, there are lots of people out there that will either think that these don't apply to them or, uh, or what have you. I've, when we were in Okinawa, we saw lots of young families where, you know, you would have somebody who's probably still a private, and they're like, oh, I didn't get command sponsorship. You know, my new wife and our one-year-old can't come with us, so <laughs> they'll have the spouse apply for a visa and meet up with mm. the active duty person at the new duty station, but they don't qualify for any on-base services. No oh boy. And what you run into is either the visa expires, or you've run into an emergency and you run out of money, mm-hmm. and so then it it falls to the military to humanitarian the humanitarianly mm-hmm. as <laughs> helpfully as possible. Back. Right. Yes, they evacuate you back to wherever you came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but because you weren't command sponsored, literally they will drop you back where you came from. Wow. <laughs> So no support, no services, and, of course, that's when a lot of bad things can happen. I mean, if you didn't know that you should be contacting a social worker for help, mm-hmm. yeah. Jeez. Um, it, it's not good stories after that point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it must be very traumatic sometimes. And, you know, the that's that's the... I think the probably the hardest part, but you know it's it's hard enough when you're dealing with a local school district in your home and you've lived there all along. But then you're talking about international uh, situations. Mm-hmm. That must be yes. extremely traumatic. It, it can be. Yeah, the more information you have, the better, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Now, your your son started school with the Department of Defense Dependent Services Education System, which is called DODEA. Right. Now, those are public education schools. They're located on military bases in the U.S. and around the world. Yes, they are. So, as 
the uh, American military is providing a military service to that host nation, Mm -hmm. they always would bring their families, and that meant education. So the military developed schools, and they run them like any other school, Mm -hmm. typical education, K through 12. Uh, Many of the larger bases have all of the same things you would think of, like sports and music and all of those other things attached. Right. Um, however, if you're a special needs or special education student, not every school on a DODEA base is required to provide special education. Ah. Um, so many people are like, wait, what? Stop the bus. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, but because you are overseas, there's a lot of different things that are happening. Mm. One, limited access to educators or special providers. Mm-hmm. Um, location can be a huge impact. Well, yeah. Um, and no other nation provides for ADA, Americans Disability Act, like the U.S. does. Right. So on most bases, ADA does not apply. Oh. So because you, you, you could end up in a school, say, in Korea, mm-hmm. all of those schools are built according to the Korean building codes. Right. They weren't built by the U.S. service personnel. Ah. So that means eh, they may, may not have ramps, they may not have elevators, yeah. um, things like that. So it was very important to make sure the family went to their EFMP coordinator to make sure the base they're going to had the school with enough supports, including the building itself. Right. Right. And I imagine that some, uh, you know, let's face it, if you're a special education teacher and you're given the choice between living in Japan or living in some remote corner of the world, obviously the more metropolitan areas would get the preference. Yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it also is teacher preference, too, because right. some teachers want to be remote. That's, that's kind of the draw. It's exciting for them to be right. able to um, teach students and then also learn, you know, the customs and culture of a different nation. Um, mm-hmm. But if you're a special educator, you also would would learn the system that not every school um, can hire you. They they kind of the military will make sure that specific regions will have a concentration of speech therapists or OTs or PTs. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> now in so. Fast forward to, like, I call it today's times, not back in 2000, um, there's pretty much no way a child with a traumatic brain injury would be sent to an overseas post. Right. Um, It's too expensive. They Mm -hmm. don't have enough specialists. And then, of course, now all of our military medical providers are impacted because we've been in a war footing since 2001. Right. So obviously the um, active duty persons will take precedence in any medical appointment. Right. Um, So that's impacted families being able to go to other posts with their active duty spouse.
Right. So it just depends upon where you're going and uh, what your situation is. But uh, it makes sense. But on the same token, you know, it's hard. But also, you know, the budget just isn't there like it used to be. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, not only is the budget not there like it used to be, but there was a time where the families weren't allowed to go to the new post right. with the active duty person. Right. Um, and I, I don't know the exact year, but I want to say it happened in the 1990s where we had a lot of young guys, and I say that because military was mostly guys at that time, who wanted to move up in the ranks and have a military career. Right. But if they couldn't bring their family and take an overseas assignment, you couldn't advance because increasing in rank meant you had to take at least one overseas assignment. So that's just part of, you know, your right. career and your knowledge base. Right. And like you say, there's there's more active duty war zones out there now, too. So that makes uh, makes family travel even harder. Right. Right. It really does. Yeah. Now, is it is it difficult to get special education support within the DODEA or does it just depend upon where you are? Um, I would say yes and no. Again, it's always where are you at, but also... You could have gone through the whole vetting process where there's a list of um, known providers at a post, but you could show up there and that position's not filled. Ah, okay. So we ran into a situation when we went back to Japan where the school didn't have any physical therapists, Ah. even though it was a post that you know, offered it, and they had a job, just no one was in it yet. Oh, boy. Um, so, luckily, he was still in elementary school, and we had a couple of physical education providers <clears throat> that were saying, oh, well, if he can't get PT, why don't we just offer him an extra day of phys ed, which would kind of be the creative way of making sure that the child got gross motor exercises. Ah, okay. Um, so that was something that was really awesome, and if, if parents are aware of it, they can, you know, guide the school, give them the suggestion that that's something that might work if there isn't a provider. Um, typically, if there's not going to be a provider, IDEA law states that, you know, you must notify the parents and... Um, the school would typically offer what's called compensatory service, mm-hmm. or in other words, once they do fill that position, um, your child will start receiving services again, in, including any makeup hours that were lost. Oh, okay. So that's great because they're getting the service, but what do you what do you do in the meantime? Right. right. Exactly. <laughs> so if you don't know how to implement physical therapy on your own because you're not a physical therapist <laughs> right you're like well what do i do now <laughs> so things like that yeah now of course there's probably videos on youtube and things like that it'll show you how to do certain things but back then there was none of that oh yes absolutely right and so for us uh, being on okinawa not only was internet still fairly new as far as the world wide web but access, you know, we had dial-up. Um, oh, yeah. Okinawa had only had dial-up 
for a couple of years before we arrived there. Oh, boy. <laughs> so finding information back then mm-hmm. um, was practically non-existent. Right. Um, especially if you didn't have a computer. Mm-hmm. So it's not like they had vast libraries <laughs> because everything in the public library would be in Japanese. Right. For me, anyway. Yeah. Um, now, of course, like you said, it is much easier to get information and do a lot of this training uh, on your own mm. as a parent. Um, and what's interesting is if, let's say you were missing that physical therapy piece from your IEP, but you still were getting occupational therapy, mm-hmm. um, you as a parent could maybe watch some videos talk to the OT, and they'll help you at home provide the exercises. Right. Um, that didn't always happen right. in the past. And I can say that's probably not always happening now. Well, yeah. Uh, but it can be. I mean, it mm. is a possibility. Right. And that's, uh, you know, that's fairly true of uh, public education here in the United States as well, or any kind of education. It all depends upon where you are and what's available, unfortunately. That's true. Yeah. Right. So... When we moved to our next duty station, which was Hawaii, right. that is a remote post. It is part of America, true. Right. Yes. Um, and there were military hospitals and there were civilian hospitals, but that didn't mean that all of the positions were filled, ah. even for civilians. Right. Um, so one of the challenges that my son has is low vision and blindness. But even then, let's see, when we were there, 2005, they didn't have a whole lot of people that were available to train students in Braille, and they didn't have a lot of specialists that are, I'm going to use another acronym, O&Ms, so Orientation and Mobility Specialists. So those specialists would help a low vision or blind person, you know, traverse their world, either the home or the school, um, including once your kid gets older, travel training. So how do you safely cross a road? How do you ride in a car or ride in a bus? Because you still have to know all the rules of the road, whether or not you're sighted. Oh, boy. Yeah. You, you, You still have to know how to do it. Now, were you, able to, were you able to go off base into the local community in Hawaii to get these educational supports for Cameron, or did you... Absolutely, uh, yes. Okay. Um, and we had to because we were government service, ah. not military service. Right. Okay. So for us, yes, it was a matter of just relinking with a primary care physician, a neurosurgeon, and, and all the other specialists that we needed. Right. Um, we did... Um, private OT, PT, and speech, as well as the school-based. What was interesting, though, for us in Hawaii is in our school district on Oahu, they did have school-based orientation and mobility specialists. Ah. And they had a few folks that would travel to certain schools to teach Braille. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you were in one of the other outer-lying islands, So if you're on Maui, Kauai, or the Big Island, say, (laughs) there weren't that many specialists. Um, Most people, if you needed a certain service, you would fly in from Kauai to Oahu Mm. to get your service, including medical services. 
Right. Well, Oahu being the most populous of all the uh, the islands, I suppose there's just it's easier to concentrate it all in an area. But you have to pay all you have to pay all that out of pocket. Yes. Oh boy. So if you are civilian, imagine having to fund your own flight from Kauai to Oahu. Oh boy. You know to see a specialist. So let's say you needed eye surgery or your child has epilepsy and you need um, you know uh, overnight. EEGs, I think they're called. Um, really, you, you would have to find a way to fly there. Oh Your boy. child would, you know, go through the procedure at the hospital, but where are you going to stay? Right. A lot of parents, you know, will sleep on the floor oh, in the man. hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, or if they can, they'll find a hotel. Yeah. And even though it's a short flight, it still costs a lot of money. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Um, So the difference is if you are military, and of course you're going to have TRICARE health care, they cover all kinds of medical evacuations or necessary annual flights to wherever the specialist is. Ah, okay. So, for example, when we were at Children's National Medical in D.C., we actually met several families that had come up from North Carolina Mm. to receive service because that hospital had certain pediatric specialties that weren't available in North Carolina. Oh, and the military would pay for those? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So that's the difference between if you're active duty military versus a civilian contractor. True. Uh, But they don't pay for everything. No. So you would still have to... Pay for your hotel up front and then get reimbursed. Um, and same with meals. So if you're familiar with the term TDY, temporary duty, <laughs> um, it's kind of this works the same way. Even though you're going somewhere to get a medical procedure, you pay for it and line it all up right. out of pocket and then get reimbursed. After the fact, wow, which can be a bit of a financial struggle if you're uh, if you're uh, low grade and you're not making as much. Absolutely. Wow. Yep. It doesn't actually matter if you know you're a captain or you're the admiral or you're a private. It it is expensive. It can oh, yeah. financially devastate you. Right. Um, because I don't know too many people that could come up with you know, thousands of dollars immediately. Right. No, nobody can. (laughs) Right. It's one of the reasons why most specialists or different kinds of disabilities will have disability-specific associations or nonprofits um, because they advocate for services. They advocate for funding. So I'm sure we'll get to it, but there are military Um, specific associations, and the one that I'm familiar with is the National Military Family Association. Mm -hmm. And so they will provide information to families, but they also are lobbyists. Ah, okay. So they will go to their legislators, and they will go to the different general assemblies, especially in states where there's a heavy concentration of military families, Right. and say, you know, we need more of whatever it is, <laughs> right? Um, and, and how can we make that happen, and how can we get that in the budget, how can we make sure that even if there isn't a military medical facility at a 
specific base that we have to make sure that there are private care providers. Right. So there. So that would that would have been my next question anyway. You know, the special education advocacy for parents. Uh, so that this is part of that this organization. Yes. Then, and the work they do in trying to lobby to get more help. How um how much uh, or how successful are they as far as being able to actually get? Do they work? Do they go for individualized cases? Do they work one on one with the parents, or are they more general and specific within a certain area? Well, for the National Military Family Association, it it is much more of a here's the materials that you can get from us online. Um, I do believe that they have some kind of annual conferences that parents and professionals can go to to learn from the guest speakers on different topics. But for the most part, they will follow curriculums and follow legislation and try to impact those as a lobbyist to make sure that, you know, something might sound great on paper, but as we all know, what it looks like in reality um, is not the same and probably doesn't work as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, yeah, and that's pretty much the way it is, whether you're military or not, or civilian, uh, anywhere you are, it yeah, there's there's more uh, there's more in the law than there is in actual practice. True. All right. So you currently work as a special education advocate in Virginia. Uh, do advocacy? Do you do advocacy work with the DODEA? And are there any differences in DODEA special education approaches in contrast to your work with the Virginia Commonwealth's public education system? Um, so I have only been a private advocate for about a year now. Okay. Um, previously, I was working on a for-profit project that was federally funded, and so we could not call ourselves advocates. Ah, okay. Um, so a little bit different in the terminology, um, but some of the reasons for that were in Virginia, being a commonwealth, we're so special, um, advocates are a paid professional, hmm. and advocates can lobby, whereas when I was working with the for-profit, which was funded by the federal government, Hmm. we were just called family support providers. Ah. We provided pretty much all the same information as an advocate, but we couldn't lobby. Again, so it was a different use of the word advocate. Right. We could go to our legislators and provide them with information and data, but we couldn't, ha- we couldn't do what was called the ask. We couldn't take that data, go to a legislator, and ask him to write up a specific bill to address an item. That's interesting. That's what a lobbyist does is ask for things. Right. Lobbyists also typically come with money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so the, the not-for-profit not can't do those kinds of things. So right. they inform, which I think is an awesome thing because legislators, you know, can't be the specialist on every topic. If you're an elected official, hmm. you have to cover all your constituents in the entire state, um, which, you know, has all kinds of people needing help or whatever they want. Uh, but if you can come in and provide them with data to help
help inform their decision making. Right. Um, that I believe, and that's in my opinion, is is a better process because mm-hmm. you can typically meet with all of the legislators' assistants, and each assistant is going to be topic specific. So if I wanted to go see my, and I'll use this example, I have the local legislator um, called Delegate Landy's. Mm-hmm. If I wanted to go see him and talk about education-specific things, I would pull data resources that I knew were reliable and write up a little blurb about, this is what the law says, but this is what it looks like in reality, and here's the data that shows it's working or not working. Right. And provide that to that legislator. Okay. Uh, But I wouldn't come with an ask. I wouldn't say, and can you now write a bill with blah, blah, blah in it? Right. (laughs) and so that, that's really what family support providers do is, again, they're providing information, good, solid, reliable information. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit different in advocate versus support provider. Right. Um, but when I left that particular group and I opened my own company to be an advocate, so right now I solely focus on parent needs. Uh-huh. So navigating the special education process, Um, is a big one. Um, For better or for worse, you know us parents, we are tired and pulled in a hundred directions. Right. So as an advocate, I still need to ask parents to read their rights and procedural safeguards, but let's be honest. (laughs) It's over 50 pages long. Oh, jeez. You're busy, and for the most part, it's written in legalese. Right. And parents could come from all different backgrounds, all different um, types of jobs, uh, including no job and no education. And here you are saying, uh, so for example, (laughs) I have had clients who can't read, and I have to say, all right, you need to know what's in this document. It's over 50 pages long, and I'm going to have to read it to you, and we're going to have a vocabulary list. Oh, boy. Um, So it is difficult. Um, But there are other groups that I pull from that will write guidance documents that will be in a more reasonable reading level, I would say, so Mm -hmm. about a sixth-grade reading level, Hmm. which will help a lot of parents um, be able to to read and digest that information and become an advocate themselves. Um, But a lot of times... It, it's still confusing because, you, again, you can read a document or you can read a law, but what it looks like in your county or your school division is not exactly the same. Right. A lot of leeway is given to local uh, districts and local uh, municipalities as far as how they want things to be done, and so I'm sure that happens in every state. Right. So you could have a law that would address special education eligibility, But the county that you live in will have additional processes that go along with that. Right. Well, not every county gets the same amount of money for special education, too. And that impacts the delivery of service. Absolutely. Right. Um, Not only do each county get different amounts from the state, but each county gets different amounts from the federal government. And it's all based on this wacky, convoluted formula Mm -hmm. that 
Um, I have to say I've never seen it published, but I'm sure it is somewhere. <laughs> um, if you wanted to just look at how local money comes into a school system, that's typically based on your, your taxes. And if you happen to live in a impacted area where jobs are leaving, you don't have a big tax base, and that affects how much money you can give to the school, which mm-hmm. impacts how much money they can pay their teachers um, and specialists. It also impacts the school buildings themselves. Right. Um, <clears throat> some schools are literally falling down because they didn't have the ability to just continue the maintenance. Right. And of course, teachers who have special education backgrounds are going to get a higher salary because they have to go through so much more additional training and not all school districts can afford to pay those salaries. That's very true. Um, So there is that it's um, a pay inequity, if you will, as far as one teacher looking at a different teacher's salary and how does the school board you know, vet that out or <clears throat> make that look good in their budget and how can they make that go really far. You have some counties that just can't provide services at all, but what they, they can do some different things, <clears throat> excuse me, like um, contract with specific organizations that the organization owns let's say, occupational therapist. Right. And as a school, you can contract with that organization to say, okay, I know I have 300 IEPs, and this is how many hours of OT service I need. Can I buy that from you? Right. So they'll do that. But then there are other counties who, at least in Virginia, have started saying, oh, these three counties, they all touch my borders. Let's pull our money, and we'll make a consortium. Right. And we can get more, and probably sometimes better, (laughs) providers, um, and they'll fulfill all of the hours written into all of the IEPs. Right, sometimes but not always. And, of course, then you'd run into the trouble, which is you got a couple of uh, teachers or therapists who are traveling a couple hundred miles a day. Right. Going from one school district to another. Absolutely, yes. Um, So... What I always look at, um, which is very um, my family-specific, so for my child who's low vision, who needed a vision impairment specialist and an orientation and mobility specialist, Mm -hmm. um, those are few and far between. Uh, We were lucky that we had one of those systems that developed a consortium. Um, But again, our vision impairment specialist um, could travel across four or five counties providing services for wow. kids. Mm. So it's a, it's a logistical challenge, um, time challenge. Uh, sometimes, you know, you're going to hear the provider say, oh, I drove, you know, 80 miles today to see my three students, and two of them were out sick. Right. Or the weather is bad and the roads are closed and the uh, person can't be there. Exactly. So, as you may or may not know, the vast majority of the U.S. is considered rural. Right. So, you are going to be impacted by the weather all of the time. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, so we have had providers that, for me, live on the other side of the mountain. Right. Um, For them to have to come over here on a snowy day, that's just not going to happen. Right, right. (laughs) 
Yeah. It gets kind of crazy sometimes with all these different things. Then, of course, that uh, leads some people to push for online supports. But, you know, physical therapy and occupational therapy really can't be done online. No, they really can't. Um, but there are some things that, that are changing as far as providing services. And at least in Virginia, there's a new movement uh, called telehealth. Mm-hmm. And some families are trying to get telehealth incorporated into the school system hmm. where they would use the school nurse to connect with a family um, and provide, um, you know, basic nurse checkups, if you will, oh. um, by, by phone or even by Skype, hmm. whatever. It could even just be FaceTime on your iPhone. Oh, which if you have enough service, or I should say if you have enough nurses in your public school system, that right. can work. Right, but not all public schools have nurses anymore Exactly. Either. Very few schools have a nurse in their school, let alone have a nurse in their school every day. Or even in the district. Exactly. While you might want to have a group pushing that, oh, this would be great legislation, let's Let's fund a school nurse. Yeah. <laughs> That's really not the whole story. <laughs> no, no, definitely not. We've run into interesting things even here in our school district, which is pretty large. Um, we have several nurses, but the nurses don't help just the students. They also provide a service to the teachers and the staff. So they're, they're always busy. There isn't a time where you can walk into the school nurse clinic and, and not have a line already queued up. Wow. <laughs> Including the teachers will be there. Right. Um, you know, they, they, they have some needs, too, which wouldn't benefit them to take time off and get a substitute teacher. Oh, boy. Um, so we've got teachers that do need to come down and get blood pressure checked. Um, they need to take their insulin um, all kinds of things. So it is nice that a school has a nurse, but let me tell you, they, they do everything. Oh, yeah. It's amazing how, nice. how you know, if you do have a nurse, <laughs> you you really just need to be super nice to them because they, they don't catch a breath. Right, and you, don't, and you don't know how lucky you are <laughs> that you have a nurse. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we task them with things other than than medical as well. So, if you don't have a social worker right. and you don't have a school psychologist, you will get sent to the nurse. Oh, boy. <laughs> so those aren't typically things that you learn how to do as a, you know, an LN or RN or whatever your acronym is for right. a nurse. <laughs> but you get stuck with it. Yes. Um, absolutely. Wow. What, uh, what kinds of advice would you give to parents who are going to have their kids enrolled in the Department of Defense Education Activity School System, and they're looking at special education support. You know, based on your experiences, what would you maybe do differently if you knew what you knew now? Well, because we were enrolling our child in a school um, and it was overseas, what I would do differently is contact the local parent-teacher association. Mm-hmm. Um, because I didn't know to do that before. Um, as a matter of fact, I, I relied on them a lot for local, reliable information, mm-hmm. um, even when I was in the school system. But if you're going to a new system, you can look at the school website and glean some information, but if you want to know about the school culture, the school climate, 
what parents think of teachers and administrators. Um, I have learned to not do so much online research, but literally to make phone calls. Yeah. Parent-teacher organizations and nonprofits, because they do deal with the parents all the time, and the parents absolutely know um, what's working and what's not. Right, and there are certain things, of course, that you simply cannot post online due to privacy laws and things like that, but you can tell more in confidence in a personal phone call or correspondence. Right, and for services, you're exactly right. The school, by law, has to publish that they have the entire uh, continuum of special education services. Right. Uh, but you could show up and find out that they don't. <laughs> right. Like you said, you know, they have they have the position for a certain, uh, you know, like occupational therapist or physical therapist, but it currently isn't filled. Correct. Um, so other things, um, again, if you're military, check in with your exceptional family member program provider uh, because they will have information about what they're being given from each post. Mm-hmm. Um, and that information typically comes from, I'll give you another acronym, an SLO, a school liaison officer. Okay. So this person is an active duty military person doing whatever their active duty job is. But on top of that, they work directly with the camp commander on all education issues for the Ah. DODIA system. Um, So contact an SLO if you need specific help or you, you know, don't feel like you're getting the results from an IEP team, not because, you know, they don't have a provider, but maybe the team itself needs more professional development. Mm. That's something you can go to the SLO and advocate for. Ah, okay. Um, So definitely knowing who all the players are is vital. Right. So a lot of research really needs to be done before any kind of a transfer. Right. Absolutely. And uh, not everyone, uh, maybe I'm speaking out of complete ignorance here, but uh, when uh, when a family is being relocated, are they given, you know, a few weeks or or longer notification that this is going to happen so they can do this stuff or... I think so. Typically, when an active duty person um, has to change posts, they've given them like a one-year notice. Ah, okay. And sometimes, you know, it includes like entire divisions moving from one post to another. Okay. So it's not like onesie, twosie, do the research. It could be like four or 500 people (laughs) are moving at once um, to somewhere. Okay. (laughs) Um, and that definitely has impacts on schools. Right. Um, obviously, it, it stands to reason if um, in April, North Carolina is suddenly going to get 500 new families and 500 that had been there are leaving. Oh, boy. Yeah. You don't know as a school system, you know, what's up? <laughs> How many of this and that do I need? <laughs> right. And the school is just as uh, up in the air as the families, too. Yes. Yeah. So it's like I said, it's a logistical nightmare. (laughs) Planning is so you can plan to a certain point. Right. But it's not going to be 
you know, like clockwork. Right. Um, well, especially everybody has to be flexible. Right. Yeah. And especially, too, if the uh, special education support team is active duty, they might get transferred as well. Oh, yes, that happens. And suddenly that's the reason why these positions are not filled, even though they're supposed to be. Mm hmm. Um, other issues that we've run into are um, an active duty person whose spouse is a teacher and has licensure in one state, but they're moving to a new state, and they have to get re-licensed. Oh, boy. Because all the regs are different. Right, because the military still has to follow local, state, and community standards. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, so that impacts the family's livelihood, and you, know, you could have the non-active duty spouse out of work for quite a while. Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is challenging. Wow. So just uh, do a lot of research and know who to talk to is the big thing. Right, exactly. So get get the list of who's who from what's on the school or the base website. And then obviously next steps would be like, look at who is the SLO, talk to them, see your ESMP coordinator, and don't forget the parent piece which I call the reality piece. Right. <laughs> call the PTA. Uh, some places call them PTO, so ah, okay. parent-teacher organization. Yeah. Yeah. Um, PTA so. or PTO, but yeah, get involved and find out what's going on. Right. Absolutely. And hope, yeah, and hope that the people you're talking to aren't transferring either. <laughs> right. So that's also an issue, too. Um, <laughs> we were lucky in that each time we moved, usually within six months, of leaving a post, we would be given what's called a sponsor. Mm-hmm. So somebody who's been living at that post for some time would be assigned to us to answer as many questions as possible. Oh, that's helpful. <laughs> and then as we arrive, um, especially if you're military, they're there to pick you up at the airport, um, get you into your military hotel, or if there isn't one, get you to your, you know, your foreign hotel, because right. uh, that can be challenging. You're showing up in a different nation. You mm-hmm. don't know how to talk to the taxi driver. You may not necessarily have the exact physical address in the language that you need it to be in. Right. So it's really helpful to have a sponsor. I think different um, units try to make sure that families have a sponsor. Um, but, of course, as troop movements change, so do the availability of people to just volunteer to be a sponsor. So are there any organizations that exist that can help military families? So if you haven't heard of this online resource, it's called Military One Source. Mm -hmm. And one is spelled out O-N-E. It's not the number one. Right. So parents can find a lot of information uh, by region if they're going to be posted somewhere within the U.S., but also overseas posts. And hopefully the site's been updated so that, you know, as ESMP coordinators and SLOs change, they update the names. Uh, but typically, websites and phone numbers stay the same. Okay. So, so even if a post might say, oh, Susie Jones is your SLO, um, Susie Jones might not be there anymore, but the right. phone number is the same, and you're going to get that next assigned right. SLO. So. Just call. <laughs> and there's there's typically an email, too, that you can uh, 
uh, contact for information. You know, who am I supposed to talk to? What's their phone number? That sort of thing. Exactly. So luckily we have the Internet now. Most of the, all of that would be in printed booklets, um, which was what we got when we were getting ready to move to Okinawa. So things have changed quite a bit. That's great. Uh, And I think the last really important issue, if you are a family that's going from one post to another within the United States, um, and you have a child with significant health care needs, which means you're getting Medicaid, Medicare, and supplemental security income, you will be significantly impacted moving to a new state because you have to reapply. Ah, okay. So it's not something that is universal across each state. Each state is different, and each one has its own eligibility. So it takes kind of a, a little bit of a startup time or a lag, if you will. So if you're coming from, say, New York to here in Virginia, you have to reapply at the Social Security office. Huh. And then you also have to go to a place called the Community Services Board to get your new Medicare waiver, and it takes some time. Yeah, are those boards located uh, nearby, or does this require travel to get? Do you have to go in person, or can you do you it online? You have to go in person. Oh boy! And if it's if the board is the board anywhere near these bases, or is it uh, potentially somewhere else? Sometimes, but not always. No. Oh. So each county, at least in Virginia, it used to be I think that each county would at least have some small office, and with budget cuts, they're now regional. There used to be one for me. Um, multiple ones, actually, in my county. And now there's just one in the city of Charlottesville. And then the next closest regional one is, again, across the mountain. It's over an hour away. Oh, man. So if you're new to a post, let's say you just came back to Virginia from an overseas post, which means you don't have a vehicle. Right. So you have to taxi over there and fill out all the paperwork, which you've hand-carried from you know, whatever country you came from. So that's a logistical and a financial, uh, but also a health issue. Well, yeah. You know, because if you have someone, let's just use the example, let's say your child has a tracheotomy Mm -hmm. and you need nursing service, but you have to move. So you have to lose basically the nurse that had been coming to your home to provide that service. You do what you can as a parent to do that procedure yourself over the weeks or months while you're transitioning. And then, you know, the place you're going to may or may not have enough providers. Um, wow. So, again, it impacts the family doubly because one parent who, let's say, might have been working can no longer work because now they're doing the care duties that oh. a, nor- a nurse could normally do if you just stayed put. Right, right. So you, and, there, and then you cannot do this in advance either. This has to be done after the move is made. Correct. Kind of like an IEP. It's like you can come to a new place with an IEP, and the school can do its best to implement it as written, but they're going to take 30 to 60 days to observe and write a new one. Yeah. <laughs> so same thing with services. You're going to show up to a new place, and they're going to write you a new plan, and you may or may not qualify in the new state that you arrive in. Wow. Um, you might arrive in the state state of Virginia, let's just say, (laughs) and there aren't enough nurses, and there aren't enough nurses that will be willing to take the pay under a Medicaid waiver, so you might always be that child's nurse for a long time, years and years. Wow. 
Yeah. Um, lost guess, income is, you know, the big picture there. For right. Everyone. No kidding. Yeah. Financial impact is definitely on there. And of course, you're paying for it um, out of pocket until you get reimbursed, too. Challenging. Yeah. Boy, that's a lot to go on. Right. So when you see families and you know that they are attached to the military, um, it, it's just really helpful to be empathetic, offer service, you know, where you can. Um, even families moving into a new base or a new neighborhood, you know, you can be so gracious as to offer free babysitting till you know, the parents are adjusted and can go to lots of meetings, <laughs> um, assuming the child doesn't need nursing care at any rate. Um, right. You know, offering babysitter services nice. Let them know where the support group meetings are. Exactly. My thanks to Catherine Lochner for taking the time to share her story and the great information that she's learned over the years. We have links to many of the organizations that work with military families who have special needs kids on the page for this podcast episode on our website, specialparentsconfidential.com. A great way to get in touch with us and comment on these episodes or ask questions is on our Facebook page for our podcast. You can find the link to our Facebook page on our website as well. Please help spread the word by sharing our podcast on your Facebook status and on all your favorite social media. And that's it for this episode of Special Parents Confidential. I'm John Pellegrini. Thanks for listening.